My name is Nathan Annie Barber and you are listening to Agency Dealmasters. If you saw the brutal murder of George Floyd recently, you felt saddened and shocked that these things are still happening in 2020. Our industry has an opportunity to respond to the brutality that's sadly still with us and begin to change things. Agencies communicate on behalf of brands, which means that we can actually affect some kind of positive change. Um, but a lot of that change has to begin at home with ourselves and diversity and inclusion is still a massive problem in our industry. And that's why my guest this week is Asad Duna, the founder of The Unmistakables, an award-winning consultancy that creates a world of opportunity from diversity. This interview was recorded before the tragic incidents, but I think it's relevant that we release it now. They are the best new agency as rated by Oyster Catchers. They are Startup Agency of the Year as rated by The Drum. They're the best in diversity and inclusion as rated by The Drum as well. They're also the BAME Business of the Year as rated by the Great British Business Awards. What led him to set up the agency was the idea that to set up a successful business, you must either solve the smallest problem for the largest number of people or the biggest problem for only a, a small number of people. And diversity is still a big problem for a lot of people. If you're remotely interested in seeing a fairer world for all of us, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my extra special conversation with Asad Duna. My special guest this week is Asad Duna. He is the founder of The Unmistakables. The agency delivers diversity differently. They make diversity everyone's business. They deliver the difference dividend. That's what they call the commercial, conversational, or cultural returns created from diversity, which drive the bottom line and make the business better. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Asad Duna, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Good to be here. Absolutely pleasure having you on the show. Uh, you get your degree from the University of Warwick in German business and economics in 2010. What first attracted you to the world of media and marketing? Well, German and business was something of a compromise decision for a degree. Um, <laughs> I really liked German. Uh, I wanted to study it, but I have uh, Indian parents who said, well, you know, why would you do German? Why would right. you do accountancy or economics? So sure. um, the German and business made sense. And as part of the business um part of my degree i did some modules in marketing marketing mm -hmm. strategy and I, I found it quite interesting how you we learn about how people behave and how people interact uh, and the role that brands play in society um mm -hmm. and that that for me was what i wanted to learn uh, and what it what i wanted to focus a career on um so out of that i then um finished my degree and entered marketing agency land hmm you you then spent a couple of years at the impressive agency Incredible. What did you learn from your time with the agency that would ultimately prove useful for the rest of your career? Uh, so Incredible was a brilliant independent agency. It's now been bought by Text 100 and become Archetype um, as part of a broader group. But when I went there, it was a small agency uh, across PR, digital um, events and film. And it was a really strong agency. It was, I think I joined in its eighth or ninth year. Um, Richard, the founder, had developed a really strong culture. Um, I always remember the seven or so cultural principles that there were. Cheeky was one of them. And that really mm. united a lot of people. 
um, we were able to have a lot of fun in the work that we were doing. We were able to bring that to our clients uh, and punch above our weight, really. Um, and out of it, I, I learned a lot. Richard was really open. He taught us a lot about the economics of an agency, how to run an agency business, high margin versus low margin um, work. Uh, and I, I took that away and I took away a mentor in him and, and a lot of friends in my colleagues who were there who've gone on to do amazing things. Hmm. You you become an associate director at Weber Chandwick in 2016, uh, where you led the consumer and technology work for HSBC, Netflix, Microsoft, um, at the most awarded PR agency in the UK, at EMEA. Um, what did you learn from your time with the agency? Like Web, Weber is on a completely different end of the spectrum from incredible, like large, networked, global. Right. Um, and one of the things that Weber really teaches you is is client servicing and client handling. Um, some of the best client handlers I've ever met and worked with are uh, at Weber because it's all about putting the client first and really um, using that to grow the business uh, and understand the needs. Uh, I definitely learned that. I think and the global network that it provided was brilliant. Um, and the exposure that it gave us. I went to Cannes for the first time through mm. Weber. Um, I uh, won a couple of competitions, um, like the PR Week 30 Under 30. Um, so, yeah, I, it was a really, really good opportunity and, and a great um, launch pad, I suppose, for um, launching the Unmistakables. Fast forward a couple of years and you become the Director of Communications for Pride of London in 2018. Uh, you led a team of 25 people across PR, social, political engagement and content to support the delivery of the biggest Pride event in the UK. 30,000 people took to the streets to celebrate the LGBT community. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. Right. So Pride was actually at the same time as Weber because it is a, huh. a volunteer led organization. Um, so I volunteered as the director of comms, sat on the board, um, heading up the comms function. Um, and I, I learned a lot of things there, probably in the context of agency land. I, I learned how to be in-house and how to be a client. Um, so I was working at an agency whilst managing an agency. And I found that to be a really uh, stimulating place to be. A little bit confusing at times because you, I think the skills that you need to be a good client to help your agency thrive and prosper are very different to an account handler. Um, But I, so I I learned that. And I guess I also learned about the broader comms function and how it reports into a big complicated event like Pride. Our stakeholders were um, the Met Police, for example, the Greater London Authority. So Sadiq's office, there were Mm. Westminster City Council. So um, navigating complex stakeholder relationships was something that I took out of that as well and, and yeah. learning very quickly about crisis comms uh, and, and the full spectrum of, of marketing communications. Quite quite fascinating. You're, you're a 2019 scholar of the Marketing Academy. You, you were selected as one of 30 emerging marketing leaders uh, into a 12-month scholarship program from thousands of applicants who applied around the country. Um, my fiancé has also uh, been successfully accepted this year as yeah. well. Um what did you learn from that experience? Tell, a little, tell us a little bit about the Marketing Academy and what you got from it. So the Marketing Academy is, is a brilliant, brilliant scheme. Um, and the, the way that they set that up, it's now in its 10th year, is to provide marketers with training and um, the understanding that they need to become better leaders. A lot of it is about leadership. How do you um, build and grow a team? How do you get the best out of people? How do you manage yourself, your own energy? 
all of the things that you don't really learn in a formal way at work. You sort of learn on the job. Um, sure. What the Marketing Academy does is give you um, the theory behind it, gives you some practical ways to deal with it, and more importantly, gives you a network of other people in similar industries and fields um, that you can learn from and grow with. Um, so I, I took a lot from that experience, and um, I'm really pleased to hear that your fiancé got a place on it. She's super excited. She, um, we haven't been able to talk about anything else <laughs> since she got. Since <laughs> it will she got be like infected. that now for the next twelve months. It is. It it seems like a bit of a shame though, in that because of COVID, they're having yeah. to do a lot of their sessions remotely, which I guess takes away a little bit from the experience. Would you say? A, a little bit, yeah. I I did the I did a bit of the induction last week, um, and I think it does change it. Um, the the residential feel of. Um, the boot camps are great and hopefully they'll get to do one or two in the next 12 months so it was not lost and it might be mm. a very different experience but I think the learning will still be there um, and it's important to give it the focus it needs. On on her kickoff call she had a, a conversation with I think one of the mentors was the CMO of Amazon. Oh, was, oh yeah I think it was probably Ed Smith the GM. Ed Amazon. Smith yeah. Super excited I asked her to get him on the podcast she hasn't she she hasn't said anything to me about <laughs> about that yeah but i'm still i'm still pressing her Straight in. Uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the unmistakables you you set up the agency in 2018 mm-hmm. what factors led to that decision uh i think there were a few there were i guess some telltale signs throughout my career of people saying to me oh you'll go on and set something up i can just see you doing that um and that came at stages where i probably didn't believe that was possible um and it just took time for me to land on the idea and build up the confidence. So I guess the factors that led to it were I was at Fleischmann Hillard for a couple of years um, and then left there to go to a tech startup called Triptease. And I got the bug for a startup, the kind of the growth of it, the um, entrepreneurialism of it. I worked for two very, um, very good entrepreneurs, James and Charlie Osmond. And that experience taught me kind of what you need in the resilience and the softer skills of um, setting up and going out and doing something differently. And I think from there, I I went to Weber kind of knowing in the back of my head, maybe I'll set something up, um, but not really knowing what it was. And then when I was at Weber, I just kept landing on this diversity problem. And Mm. any entrepreneur would tell you that the best way to set up a business is either solve the smallest problem for the largest number of people or the largest problem for one or two people. It just, that will detail your business model. And for me, diversity seems to be a big problem for a lot of people, right? But people Mm -hmm. aren't getting it right. And you see that coming through uh, in things like the, uh, the Pepsi advert from years ago, you see it coming through in, um, I guess, misjudged marketing, misjudged advertising. Wait, um, talk a little bit about that. The, the Pepsi advert. Yeah, sure. So um, I think it was 2017 or 18 where they created an advert with Kendall Jenner and it was all about that um, they created an in-house advert and the, the premise of it was that Pepsi could bring world peace uh, hmm. and it was really badly developed in bold. The, the way it was set up. Yeah, it was very bold. And as, as we explored it, it was because A, it was developed in-house, so perhaps they didn't have external agencies um, cutting through some of that um, I guess Stockholm <laughs> syndrome inside sure. uh, organizations but there's nothing wrong with sure. in-house agencies they can work really well um, but I think it was also because there weren't different voices around the table as is so yeah. often the case 
Mm. Um, and actually, when we dig into the diversity conversation, it's more about equality. It's more about deeper structures and processes. So that became the jumping point to say, okay, I've got, I've got the, the nugget of an idea. Um, I've managed to get some seed investment for it and uh, take the leap. And I think it was that. It was a combination of building up that confidence, having the right idea, um, and then just thinking, well, if not now, when? Give it a few years. If it works, great. If it doesn't, then something else will come along. Um, but that takes a long time to get to that place in terms of mm. your mindset. Mm. So, so you talked about the importance of solving a problem in the marketplace first for the greatest number of, of people. How else do companies get diversity wrong? How do companies get diversity wrong? Um, I think a lot of the time it isn't that they get it wrong proactively. Uh, it's because the systems and structures have been in place for many, many years and have never been challenged and checked. So um, often they won't, within their HR function, let's say, think about bringing in different voices and different people through a graduate scheme. And then even if they do get those people, there's no checking and monitoring of are those people retained and developed through the business so that they eventually become leaders in the business um, and sit on the exec, which is why you don't have ethnic diversity on boards. The, the reports every year show that there isn't enough and we're not hitting um, the measures that have been set. Uh, so often it's because of sleepwalking. It's because people mm. don't know what they're doing or uh, feel afraid to talk about things. I think Twitter has um, fueled this feeling that we don't quite know what we can say. We could be cancelled at any minute by lots of mm -hmm. people. Therefore, people switch off to the conversation rather than engaging with it. Sure. Um, we've lost a bit of debate. So I wouldn't say that companies go out there and get it wrong. I would just say that society is evolving to a place where sleepwalking um, into crises is more mm. often the case than not. So talk a little bit about where the unmistakables fits into this into this picture, because to me, there are two sides to this. There's the internal structure of the organization that allows a culture of uh, a lack of diversity to uh, to grow. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is the communication. There is the external communication that the organization wants to do with the wider world or their stakeholders. Mm -hmm. um, what where does uh, where does the unmistakable start and where do you stop in that sort it's, of arrangement? It's a very good question. As we've developed the company, we've looked at that a lot in terms of is it about the inside? Is it about what you put on the outside? I think some of our earlier positioning was more around that. As we've developed and grown with our clients, we've got to a place where we talk about finding the opportunity from diversity and creating opportunities out of diversity. And the reason why we say that is because it can be internal just as much as it can be external. And we come in as consultants to help pinpoint the problems and then troubleshoot them. So it could be how do you set up your employee resource groups in the right way so that they actually um, nurture and encourage a more diverse workforce? Or how could you bring those groups in to consult and advise on some of the external marketing? So. Where we really operate is to the C-suite, usually um, chief marketing officers or chief comms officers, comms directors, or into the CEO to help navigate through this problem. Because if you see it as a, a siloed problem, if people see it as mm. an HR problem, which often mm. it can be um, perceived as, then it doesn't it doesn't get the, the leverage to make change in the business. Sure. Um, so yeah, we we operate that kind of top level as consultants to to drive change wherever it needs to happen in, in the Super business. Super interesting. And, and do you see this as a, a, a bottom-up 
problem or a top-down problem? Is, is it something that needs to be tackled from the top down so that the CEO or the leadership team needs to come in with a very clear picture as to what their stance on diversity and inclusion should be? Or should it be championed from the bottom up? I think it needs both. So usually it starts from the bottom up. You'll get LGBT or Pride Network set up. You'll get a BAME network set up because employees naturally come together and want to find support and make change. But that change is really limited unless and until the senior leadership take it seriously and set out a plan. There are some organisations that do it right from the top, and it might be because the leadership themselves are from diverse backgrounds or have, have, have brought that on board, but it ha- it can only be effective if you've got people from the bottom up as well who can tell you mm. the reality of, of what's happening. So I, I would say it's both, which is why it's such a big problem for people to try and address, because you're not just talking about diversity, you're talking more about organisational change. You're talking about how to drive a culture in a business to give you a five to 10 year advantage um, and more importantly, keep you relevant in the market because younger people especially are more tuned into the fact that diversity matters. Hmm. We we had a, um, a, a guest on the show last week, Colin Campbell-Austin. He was formerly head of talent and resourcing at The Guardian and Channel 4. And he said that he, he actually doesn't like the word diversity because what what the word does is it actually excludes a lot of people who could actually help uh, a lot of people that have skills and experience and know-how a makes them feel excluded from the conversation Mm. and b it doesn't really provide um any area where they can add value and where they can help and obviously there are people that still have skills talent and a lot of value to add where do you stand on um, the term diversity um, as almost counterintuitively sort of a, a hindrance to diversity? Yeah, yeah he's, he's spot on. Um, me and my business partner, Ben, talk about this a lot um, because he finds when we share things about diversity on his network, they don't get as much engagement as other things. And we talk mm. a lot about the mainstream and the mainstream or other streams where people aren't uh, as engaged in diversity topics and I think Colin's absolutely right to to call it out uh, it does feel very divisive that that's why we've taken this view that you have to make diversity everyone's business it can't just be um, people from different backgrounds who are talking about it and carrying out carrying it for two reasons one is um, it, it's not fair for that mental load to be there but actually the change is going to come from people who are maybe less diverse mm. in inverted commas Um, And I guess what what I would play back to Colin is I think lots of people can know what it's like to be different. I think about right now in the media narrative around diversity, lots of men feel like they're different. They can't speak up. They can't say things, which um, has good and bad elements to it. Um, But I I think it's absolutely right that we have to challenge the wording and make sure that this is more about um, inclusion within businesses. It's more about equality um, and ultimately about driving the bottom line. Hmm. And are there certain brands you're seeing your clients? Are there certain brands that are moving towards this more than others? Are there certain industries that you think have a more of a focus on diversity and inclusion issues? I think some of the newer tech brands have more of a focus on it, but it's almost an unintentional focus because they're new. So Mm. take Netflix, for example. Netflix is a very good 
um, streaming service that is showcasing diverse narratives. So it could be Never Have I Ever came out. Um, a lot of the shows that are on Netflix tell the stories of uh, people whose stories have not been told because uh, mainstream media have chosen not to tell them or thought mm. that there's no market for it because it's not big enough. Mm. Um, so you've got the likes of Netflix doing a job. And, and I think that then leads others, let's say the BBC, to look at it and say, well, what should we be doing? And what? Sure. why aren't we getting those stories out there? Um, I think Facebook is a good example. Their recent Ramadan campaign, I think, was best in practice of working with Muslim influencers, developing content around them, realizing that Ramadan is a big opportunity for the customers on Facebook who use advertising there um, mm. to to grow and develop their own businesses. Um, so yeah, I, I, since I started the business, for sure, I'm seeing a lot more um, best practice coming out or, or better examples in case studies. But I wouldn't say there's any one particular industry. I think it's just newer organizations are able to do it quicker because they're not having to reset structures they're able to build from new super fascinating you you don't see many people from diverse backgrounds such as your such as your own entering the industry at, at least setting up agencies and becoming founders what made you think you would be successful <laughs> um what made me think i successful I guess, like blind fear um I, I, I always I, I always laugh that it, like people from my background are more likely to set up a corner shop than they are an ad shop or a marketing sure. shop um, sure. and uh, I play with that because I, I think entrepreneurialism exists within diverse communities for sure often when you're at the margins you have to find new ways and innovate sure um in new ways okay. of doing things I, th- yeah. I think within marketing and in our industry um there's push and pull factors so on the one hand you've got the fact that the agencies and businesses that are set up or marketing functions don't look diverse so that when people go into them, they don't feel like they fit or it's somewhere for them to be long-term. And that's a structure that needs to get uh, changed and challenged. But then on the other side, you've got people from diverse backgrounds, let's say Indian backgrounds, which is what I'm from, where marketing isn't seen as a uh, rewarded profession. It isn't seen uh, in the same light as being a lawyer or being an accountant, which I find ironic because being a lawyer and accountant is actually quite a risky career to go into now, given the level of information <laughs> sure. in those fields. So sure. I, I think there's work to be done on lots of different sides, but in the main, it's because um, I think culturally marketing isn't seen uh, as a career. And then once you get into it, you've got the challenge of seeing people like you around you. Hmm. So you're, so you set up in 2018. So you're two years into into your journey now as a founder of an agency. In September, yeah. And tell us what, <laughs> tell us how prepared you felt at, at the beginning for it, and sort of give us a helicopter view of sort of where you are now as an agency. Sure. So um, when I start, I guess I I was thinking about it long before I left my job at Weber. Um, uh, oh, sorry, I'm going to sneeze. Let me just start that again. <laughs> huh, um, so the run-up to the question was, what, how, prepared, how prepared did I feel? Yeah, how, how prepared did you feel? And tell us a little bit about where the agency is today. So I've been thinking about it for a long time. So it's not like I just woke up one day and said, I'm going to leave my very comfortable, stable corporate job and take this big risk. I've been thinking about it, talking to a lot of people about it uh, and working up um, how I was going to do it. And I think at the time I took the approach that I'm just going to learn. Uh, I've got to learn as much as I can um, and move as fast as I can. Those were the two principles I think I had. And those are ones that I learned from Triptease. 
um, part of what made Tripti so successful was a relentless drive to learn and to grow. Um, and, and that's where I, where I took it. And then from September, when I started, it was, uh, what can I learn about the world of diversity? What can I understand? Uh, and then who around me can um, be part of this journey? So my focus slowly started to shift and probably through the marketing academy to understand that if this business is going to be successful, it's going to be about the people who are around me who are on this too. So bringing in Ben, my business partner, who is brilliant and had something very different. We challenge each other a lot. And I would say mm-hmm. anyone who wants to set up a business, don't do it alone. You need the company. Um and also in our context, like Ben, Ben um, talks about diversity in a very different way, kind of to the point of Colin that we talked about. Mm. Um, and then uh, a relentless drive to think about our clients and focus on the clients. So early on, we won some work with the England Cricket Board, which became an anchor client for us um, to grow and develop. And we work with them on diversity and now more on mainstream PR and communications for um, a new tournament. And that has allowed us to grow uh, and allow us to develop. And I guess where we're at now is uh, 18 or so months in, okay, what what do we want this business to now look like for the next three years? We've proven that there's a concept. We've proven that we can become known for something. We were very lucky to win five awards at the end of last year, which gave us a position in the market um, that we're now defending rather than um, trying to reach. So, how are we going to evolve that? Uh, and I think at the beginning of the year, we had really ambitious targets for where we wanted to get to. Um, and COVID came along. It and changed a little yeah, bit. It changed for everyone. Right. Um, but right now, it's just relentless focus on our clients. Um, being agile and energetic are two things that are really important to us. Um, and being, tr- being trusted advisors um, as well. I think those are the most important things for us right now. What was the vision for the business when you first set it up? What was the long-term goal? I, uh, the, the long-term goal was to help businesses do this differently and do this better. That's mm. always been my ambition. And I think it comes from, like when I think back 10 or so years ago, when I started in the uh, industry and I looked around and there were no people who looked like me in advertising. There were no people who, uh, who looked like me in, in the workplaces that I was in. And as I saw that change and develop, I just thought agencies can't stay behind. Agencies cannot fall behind. I fundamentally believe in the business model of agencies. I think that the work is great. I'm someone who likes to look at lots of different things at one go and and find correlations between different industries um, and in society. Uh, And that was my vision. I I think personally, it was also like, can I do it? It was a Mm. bit of a personal challenge for myself. so those things came first, I think, and then um, all the other spoils of running a business in terms of the freedom that you get, um, mm. I considered as well. Talk a little bit about sort of how you've changed over the last 18 months. What were the problems at the beginning of running your agency and sort of what are the problems that you're dealing with? What are the biggest problems you, or challenges you, you're, you're dealing with today? So the biggest problems when you start a business is no one knows who you are. So if you're used to coming from like a Weber Shamwick and you've got names like Microsoft and HSBC and everything, people open the door for you. They want to talk to you, namely because they know you've got budget. Hmm. When you're starting out by yourself, um, no one knows who you are. So you've got to work twice or three times as hard to get the door open. And then once you've got the door open, you've got to work twice or thrice as hard because you're learning and you're building as you go. 
Um, so I think those are the things that I look back and think those were issues. Um, and then also just having um, having company, like I started the business by myself and Ben came on very early on. Uh, and that was a that was a key change for us because it meant we were operating together. And I think if you're going to do it, do it with a partner, like work on the trust that you have um, with someone to develop it. And then if I think now um, our, our problems are more around growing pains. So you go from doing all of the accounting, like I've gone, for example, from doing all the accounting myself, because I knew it was important for me to understand the books, to saying, okay, I've got to outsource this. I've got to um, work out how to scale. And the best analogy I've got for that is you've got to give away your Lego. And this isn't my analogy. I, I read it from somewhere. Okay. Which is, if, you're, if, you watch, if you watch a child play mm. with a set of Lego and they're building a city, that mm. child can, can only build as much as they can with that Lego based on their resources and based on their capability. But sure. if they bring someone next to them and say, okay, you build this part of the city and mm. you do that, I'm going to oversee this and make sure it all looks consistent and coherent but I'm going to give you some Lego so that you can get on with it. And then that person can go, okay, I'm going to give someone else some Lego. And that's mm. how you scale. But that's a mindset shift for someone to go, I'm okay with giving this away. Mm. Um, I'm okay that someone else can do it better than I can. I'm okay mm. that it might not look exactly how I would do it, but it still is cohesive in what my city mm. should look like. Sure. Um, so that, that growing pain is not just like financial, it's also a psychological shift that you go through around 18 months into a business. Hmm. Super fascinating. And and what do you think that you specifically bring to the business? Is it great intellect, great passion, hard work? What do you think? <laughs> I'd like, like to say all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess like I probably, yeah, hard work is we, we've been talking quite recently about our working patterns during COVID. So we used to do a 9am and 5pm check-in. And what we were finding was actually that was bookending the day, which was good. But actually for me, like I work at different hours because I feel productive at different times. And so mm. does that make sense? And same for, for Ben, he was saying, well, actually he gets up quite early because it gives him time before his son wakes up to focus on things. So I wouldn't say it's hard work in terms of the amount of hours. W what I'm trying to do now, um, and I learned this from Debbie Klein, who's a CMO at um, Sky, through the Marketing Academy, she came and gave a talk. And she said the number one um, priority for a leader in a business is to develop capability and capacity. So mm. all I think about right now is how can I make my team more capable uh, and give them the tools that they need, give them the learning that they need, give them the opportunities they need. Um, for the business to grow and then the uh, capacity. So how can I um, find time? So for example, how can I, um, in a small way, uh, delegate a lot of the financial stuff to someone so that I can use my time to do something else that gives me capacity in a different way. Um, so yeah, I would say now it's really about cap capability and capacity growth. How, do, how can we do that? Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. I said, final question before we get into our favorite questions towards the end of the <laughs> end of the interview, which I'm super excited to ask you some of them, actually. How, how do you improve your skills as an entrepreneur? I mean, where do you go to for your own growth and personal development? I found this quite hard at the beginning um, to think about where I go and grow. Um, and actually, one of the things that changed for me was when I started to find 
uh, more entrepreneurs to talk to, uh, to share their experiences or understand what they went through. And that that was a big changing point for me, because I think there are certain things where when you've got the pressures of running a payroll and you are responsibility for uh, you, you carry the responsibility for um, others, it's a different mindset. Uh, so that that's where I go. And I think the other place I go is just to find some solitude, whether it's through meditation or prayer or cycling. Having that downtime, I've found, is what gives me more productive uptime. Hmm. Really fascinating. And Sad, I, I know I've only got you for a few more minutes, so let's get into everyone's favourite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests, so I'm super excited to ask you some of them as well. Okay. Um, tell us about a time when you failed and what you okay. learned from the experience. Um, so the time that I failed, I'm going to tell you about a time that felt like a failure. Okay. So I prepared a lot for a prospective new business meeting. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was early on in the business. It's probably like the October or November. And did loads of work, put put it in, went, had a perspective. And then nothing really came from it. And I walked out of that thinking, oh, what a waste of time. Like that sure. felt like a failure. Right. Um, and then actually fast forward three months and we got a call from them with a brief. Huh. And what I learned from that, I think are two things. One comes from some stuff I learned through yoga, which is no effort goes unrewarded or unnoticed. And so I think every, every effort that you make in life in some way will get noticed, Mm. whether it's by you later on, whether it's by others at the same time, like it will always happen. Uh, And the second is just to trust and have a bit of patience. Like I'm a natural, naturally impatient person, which people say is to my strength and also equally to my detriment. But having that patience and just thinking actually three months down the line, um, it was fine. And that a year and a bit later, they're, they're a great client of ours. So, yeah, mm. that, that turning a failure around through patience and perseverance. Really interesting. You mentioned some of your earlier mentors from the Marketing Academy. Tell us who else influenced your career. Who, what mentors influenced your approach to business and entrepreneurship? Uh, so I mentioned Richard very early on. He... he um, he shaped it. I think James Osmond did as well, who I worked for at Triptease, um, because he's just he just believes in the entrepreneurial spirit uh, in a big way. And having been someone who's set up and grown and sold a business, I really trusted that advice that he gave me. Um, I would also say uh, Alex Zubko, who was one of the co-founders at Triptease, who is based out of New York. She she taught me a lot as someone who went from the corporate world into the startup world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually the difference in mentality that you have when you make that shift, because the corporate world is a structure that works uh, and you climb a ladder and you work your way to the top. Sure. Whereas entrepreneurialism is a bit more haphazard. Messy. <laughs> Messy, yeah. Um, and, and we kind of navigated that and compared notes a lot. And I, I really I look back on those conversations with Alex very fondly. Mm. Tell us something we don't know about Assad Duna. Uh, usually I would say um, I'm fluent in German. That would be my hat trick. Because, <laughs> you, because you've mentioned that. Yeah, it's can, that's, can that's, the limit. that's the limit. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I have no idea what you're saying now. <laughs> um, what's something that nobody knows? I genuinely don't know that. Um, <laughs> And I guess if I did, I probably wouldn't tell you anyway. Sure. Um, there's probably yeah. a reason why people don't there's, know there's things. There's probably a reason why. Uh, well, I, okay. I would just, I, if you wanted me to give you a little bit on that, like 
I think there's a big difference between secrecy and privacy. And so okay. some things are just private because they have to be rather than that yeah. you're being kept secret. Interesting. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What do you read for personal development, professional development? What books do you go back to time and time again? So there's an ongoing joke with me and my friend uh, that I, I don't read much fiction, which is much to my detriment. Do I. I read probably too much nonfiction. I, yeah. Um, thinking about this, I was thinking, oh, what's like, what's the one book or what could I tell you? And the, the, the one book that always sticks out is um, If I Could Tell You Just One Thing, which okay. is by the founder of Innocent Drinks. Right. R Richard, I think his name is. Right. Um, because he interviewed world leaders and with a really simple ask, which is what, what's the one piece of advice you would give someone? Mm. Um, and it's great. He, I think he's got like Tony Blair in there, Bill Clinton, like really amazing figureheads and world leaders uh, who've just given like a really short piece of advice. And like, I just consumed that book really quickly because uh, it was, it was fascinating. I get the most recent what, thing I've finished reading. What's, is, one uh, thing that, what's one thing from that book that sticks in your head? Oh, just actually like the colours of it, the the binding of it oh. is really. Awesome. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about. I was thinking about the advice. Oh no, um, the binding. Yeah. <laughs> is is there any piece of advice from any of the world leaders that that sticks in your head? I think a lot of it is what you would expect, right? But I, mm. it was so many years ago, and I don't have it. Right. Okay. Uh, one of the books I've recently read, finished reading yeah. is the the online world of British Muslims by Hussein Kesfani, okay. which is a really good look at uh, where Muslims live online and, and kind oh. of what that behaviour looks like. So, you know, I talked at the beginning about marketing and understanding people's uh, motives and behaviours, uh, and he does a really good deep dive into how Muslims operate in the internet and and what the forums look like and stuff. So, I'd recommend that. Tell us an uh, fascinating insight from the book. Um, he talks. Uh, he talks about some of the preachers on YouTube oh. and um, how they aren't actually like backed or they're not accredited by anyone. They they just kind of preach what they think Islam is. Mm. Uh, and he talks about going to meet one of them. Uh, and this guy like lives in this little bed sit in East London. Um, and like from the outward out of it, like from his external perception, you would think the hillcliff there's nothing to him. But his online mm. persona is like this thousands of followers he's got loads of people he talks right. about Islam and preaches it and yeah that, that was just fascinating because I think because we consume so much of our screen sometimes we don't always look behind what's going on or how how that's got to be not at all really really interesting in the last three to five years what ideas behaviors or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes oh okay three to five years um what I have added is I have done more yoga. I have uh, okay. cycled more. Um, I, 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 and actually, this is a good tip for trying to set a habit, was I said, okay, I'm going to cycle to work once a week. Right. And then once became twice, and then twice became three times, and then three right. times became every day. Right. And um, that, that, that was really helpful. Just you do things in increments. And the cycling yeah. for me gives me so much headspace to think about things, come up with ideas, yeah. um, de-stress. So that, that's been big. Um, I think also not, not fretting the small things. A, a, a boss of mine, um, Josh Ross, when I was at Fleischmann, he 
he said like you've got to not fret the little things because they're the things that hold you back sometimes focus on the bigger picture um, and that's been a habit that I've tried to develop to the point where lots of people say they really value what I bring because I look at the bigger picture mm. rather than the the minutiae and detail the minutia. but that, mm. yeah um, so yeah I'd say that super interesting and last couple of questions what advice would you give to a millennial or young person that approaches you and says that they want to start an agency or start their career in the agency world um i would always be biased on my experience right so i I would say go and get some experience first um because a you learn on someone else's risk Mm -hmm. um and i'm quite open about that like if someone comes and works at the unmistakables and they want to go off and run a business one day great that's a great outcome Mm -hmm. of, of what the business is achieving um and I would say, like, really spend your time doing your research and talking to people and understanding, is your idea a good one? Uh, lots of people say, I've got an idea for a business. Um, mm. But not a lot of people go, I've researched it. I think this is what it looks like. I think this is the potential market size. This is the product market fit that I'm trying to achieve. Um, this is the overall goal I want to get to in five to 10 years. I, I would say, do your work, take your time. Um, don't assume that it happens overnight. Just on that, do you think it's more about the idea or is it about the execution of the idea? It's always both. It is always, Mm. always both. Um, What it's more about, I would say, Nathan, is your product market fit. Mm. So if you're developing something, is the market ready for it? Like, could I have done this business five years ago? Probably Mm. not, because the conversation around diversity wasn't where it is today. Um, Mm. So the market has moved on and evolved. Um, but if you were asking me about idea and execution, I'd say it's probably 20% idea, 80% in the execution, um, because everyone can have an idea, but not everyone can execute it. Exactly. That's exactly right. And and my final question, Asad, what do you know about growing a business and running an agency today that you wish you knew either 18 months ago or at the beginning of your career? (laughs) Uh, 18 months ago. I wish I had I wish I had an inkling of where it might be um, just because some of the work we've done I'm so proud of the team I'm so proud of like I, I kind of wish someone could go if you, if you knew it was going to look like this you would feel really motivated even more motivated by it um, if you ask me at the beginning like it's some of the stuff that I think I can try and find interesting but isn't my natural territory which is around utilization rates the real like business mechanics of sure. the agency life, um, which I, I had learned, but probably now more than ever is more important mm. now that I'm, I'm running my own. Mm. Super fascinating, great place to end. Asad, thank you for doing this. Thanks very much for having me, Nathan. Been a pleasure. We have been speaking with Asad Duna. He is currently the founder of The Unmistakables. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to 56 such conversations we've had now with world-class sales and marketing leaders. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and give us a review. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Deal Masters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Mageki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. And we are done. (laughs) Great.